Heavenly Father, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from Your Word. Thank You for the Holy Spirit You've given to us. May He guide us into all truth, protect us from error, help us to understand the Scriptures, and give us hearts that are inclined to Your Word. May the Word be accurately and faithfully proclaimed today. May Your messenger uh, understand what he is saying and, and reading. And may we apply the Word of God in, in very practical ways as Peter's trying to do for us. So, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, today we're in 2 Peter chapter 3. The title of uh, the message is basically this. What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> okay. To me, I think that's what Peter's basically trying to tell us. And, of course, the Apostle Peter is a human agent the Holy Spirit used to write these words. And you need to understand something about Peter. He was a man who knew what it was like to fall, and when he fell, he fell hard. Shortly before Jesus' death, the Savior had told his disciples, You will all fall away because of me this night. And Peter, by the way, the Bible tells us, was the one who told Jesus, Though they all fall away, all those disciples, all those guys, you know, they can fall away. I will never deny you. I will never fall away. You hopefully know what happened next. The Bible tells us that Peter fell once, Peter fell twice, and Peter fell a third time before the presence of a giant. Right? No. He didn't fall before a giant. The Bible tells us he actually fell before a very young servant girl. How embarrassing is that? But two other important events also took place on that night. First of all, Jesus prayed that Peter's faith would not fail. And second, Jesus charged Peter to go, strengthen your brothers. After you've fallen and have arisen again, go strengthen your brothers. You say, well, how did Peter do? Did he strengthen his brothers? I believe he did. And Peter continues to strengthen his brothers and sisters in Christ, even today. So here we find Peter. As he writes this, he's at the end of his life. He's strengthening the church, preparing the church for what's to come. He knows what's coming. Here he is. He's strengthening the church through this book we call Second Peter. And so as we come to the close of this amazing letter, I hope you're encouraged. It was written under the authority of somebody who knew what it was like to fall. Yet it comes to us by the hand of somebody whose faith did not fail. His faith did not fail. So I ask you, my friends, how about you? Do you want to fail? Well, if you want to be a failure, then just ignore Peter's words from the Holy Scripture. Just ignore them, and you will fail. But if you want to be a success, if you want to succeed, then you need to listen and obey what the Holy Spirit has written here for you. Not just for the people in Peter's day, but some very practical application for you as well. So let's look at the words from our living God here in Second Peter chapter 3. Starting in verse 11. Look at verse 11. 
Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So I propose to you today from this text here, my friends, that God wants your entire life to glorify Him. And by your entire life, as you will see in the text, I mean not just your actions, but even your very attitudes. Your actions and attitudes are to bring honor and glory to God for your entire life. So Peter gives us some practical application to wrap up this wonderful book. And so you're saying, well, how should Christians live in the light of all this stuff that Peter's wanted us to know? May I remind you, starting back in chapter 1, Peter wants you to know your salvation. He's already told us he wants you to know the Scriptures. Chapter 2, he told you that he wants you to know your enemy. And as we came into chapter 3, Peter said, I want you to know the future. So in light of all that, what do you do with it? What do you do with that? How should a Christian live? Number 1, Peter says, clean up your life. Clean up your life. So God wants your entire life. And by your entire life, again, Peter's talking about both the outward as well as your inward part of you to be cleaned up. By that, I mean, if you look at verse 11, Peter uses two words showing the outward and the inward. First of all, notice he uses the word holiness. Verse 11. You see it in your text there in verse 11. Holiness It refers to your external actions, the outward part of you, what you do. God cares about what you do. (laughs) But He also cares about your inward attitudes because He uses the word godliness. So it's holiness and godliness. Godliness being your internal attitudes. Now why would God care about your internal attitudes? Because you're going to do what the inward tells you to do. Uh, out of the inner part of you comes everything else. So, 
It's, it's, it's not just one. It's both. God cares about both. Your holiness and godliness. Clean it up, he says. Well, what areas of your life require some cleanup? By the way, don't rush. <laughs> when you think about that, don't rush through that. This is actually very serious business, as he says in verse 11. So, I mean, he's, he's already mentioned in the previous context what he's going to do. God's judgment is coming on the unbelievers. The entire universe is going to be erased, gone, burned up. And so because that is going to happen, Peter says, what sort of people ought you to be? You need to ask yourself that. What sort of people should you be? What areas of your life require some cleanup? You need to think about this, because the reality is all of us have sin in our lives. We sin every day, probably. In fact, the Apostle John put it this way, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1, verse 8. So don't deceive yourself. We're all sinners. We all sin. But what do we do about it? Well, here here it is, my friends. Even even the most mature believer has areas he or she needs to address. Don't deceive yourself. You need to address this. Peter's telling you to clean up your life. And by the way, to help prick your conscience, you say, well, how, how how do I even think about this? Well, let me give you a starting place. Study what the Apostle Paul says when he compares the deeds of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. So take Galatians chapter 5 as a good starting point. Look at the deeds of the flesh. Look at the fruit of the Spirit. Mark those fleshly deeds in your life. Look at the fruit of the Spirit and say, what what in that fruit of the Spirit is missing? What's absent in my life? And then what you do with that is then you go to God, of course. And you do what the Apostle John did in 1 John 1, 9. Because he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you believe God that he is faithful and just, you'll do that. You'll take the scriptures, to use them to examine your life. So you confess your sin to God. You've sinned against him. You seek his forgiveness. And then you ask for His enabling ability to overcome the sin in the whatever area God showed you. So that's where you start, my friends. That's where you start. That's what Peter's telling us to do as Christians, to clean up our life. But number two, how should a Christian live? Peter says, look up for Christ. So you clean up and you look up. <laughs> look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Why? Because of which the heavens, they're going to be set on fire and dissolved. The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So that expression in your Bible, waiting for, expresses an attitude of expectancy. It's an outlook on your life where you're watchfully waiting for the Lord's arrival. And by the way, Peter's use of hastening, the word hastening there, only is strengthening this concept We're to be looking up for Christ. So rather than fearing the world's impending destruction, Christians long for this. Why? 
Because you know that you have everything to hope for. And you have nothing to fear from God. Because the judgment on this universe is not for you. It's not for you. God's going to spare you. So you say, well, what are we waiting for? Well, the text says you're waiting for the coming of the day of God. I hope your text says the coming of the day of God. You say, well, what is that? Well, that's the day of God is not the same as what Peter used in the previous verses when he said the day of the Lord. So if you're looking at that wondering, is day of God the same as a few verses back, day of Lord? No, it's not. I can tell you why. Number one, the day of the Lord in the previous verses, the word Lord is the Greek word kurios. So why did they translate this day of God? Well, that's because it's the Greek word theos. God, theos. Two different words in the Greek. Context also tells us that they're not the same. So if you look at day of God in the previous verses there, that's all God's judgment. God destroying things. (laughs) Bringing judgment particularly on the unbelievers. But in this context, the day of God's good stuff happening. God bringing Good stuff to his people. So two different things. By the way, the coming. It says the coming of the day of God. Just literally means the presence. The presence. The presence of a person is coming. And in the New Testament, it doesn't primarily describe a place or event. Instead, that term, the coming, emphasizes the personal bodily arrival of a person. Of course, we're talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is coming. We, we are looking for a person. We're not looking for events. You're looking for Jesus. <laughs> well, one commentator put it this way. I hope this helps. Quote, the day of God, it's on the screen here, the day of God refers to the eternal state when God will have permanently subdued all His enemies. However, the day of the Lord refers to the final tumultuous events accompanying the last judgment of unbelievers, end quote. So my friends, take note, day of the Lord, day of God, not the same thing. See, there's a huge difference, and the difference is very important. Christians aren't looking for judgment. You're not looking for judgment. Christians are looking for King Jesus to return. At least you should be. So Peter says, how should a Christian live? You're to be waiting, looking for King Jesus to return. So how can you live each day in constant expectation of Christ's return? That's the question. I'm to be looking for King Jesus. How can I live each day in a constant expectation of His return? In other words, what can you do to remind yourself of this reality that this present earth you live on is only temporary. The house you live in is only temporary. The cars you drive, only temporary. Your job is only temporary. This identity you have right now is only temporary. How can you remind yourself of that? How can we think this way? Well, you might test yourself. Tests are are helpful to bring a right perspective hopefully. Examine how you spend your time and money. That's a good a good little test to do. All right? 
May I suggest you meditate on that this week. How do I spend God's money and time? It's really His. You're just a manager, a steward of His resources. Ask yourself, do I invest in eternal things that are going to survive God's judgment? Or are the everything that I, that I do and, and the things I invest in, are they all going to be burned up? Are you merely acquiring things that are going to burn up in the end? What's going to happen to that? So my friends, I suggest you study your spending, review your expenses, take note of your donations for God's work. Think about this. Those are helpful things. It's a helpful examination, a helpful test. Take a close look at your calendar, your, your, your schedule. How do you spend your time? Are the things you, you're building made of temporary stuff, like Paul mentions in Corinthians? Is when it's put in the fire, is it like the wood, the hay, and the stubble? Not going to survive the fire. Or, is it good quality stuff, spiritual elements, if you will, that will survive the coming judgment? Is it more like gold, silver, and precious stones? Need to examine your life. My friends, don't stop there, by the way. Ask yourself, how, how can I adjust, when you think about those things, how can I adjust my budget? How can I adjust my time? How I spend God's resources to focus more on Things of eternal value. So how should Christians live? Number three, Peter tells us to wait up for the new universe. Wait up for the new universe. So he's told us to clean up. He's told us to look up. Now he says, wait up. Verse 13. He says, but according to his promise, we are waiting. We're waiting. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for a new universe. By the way, the, this is not just a simple remodel. This is not a makeover. <laughs> okay, You ever seen those remodeling makeover shows where sometimes even, even in one day they'll, they might do a room in the house, slap some paint on, build a new cabinet. Right? This is not what King Jesus is going to do. Because the word new means new in quality. It means something different. It means something unlike any previously known. It's not a makeover. It's not a renovation. No, no, my friends. This new earth and the new universe will be far more new in time or chronology because the new earth is also going to be new in character. Notice what the text says. Because it's going to be a realm in which righteousness dwells. That's what verse 13 says. Well, that's not where we're living now, is it? No. The word, by the way, dwell in your text, means to settle down, to be at home, to take up permanent residence. In other words, when we get to the new heaven and the new earth, if you get there, righteousness will enjoy a permanent and perfect existence. Permanent. The Apostle John described the new heaven and new earth in Revelation 21. Look at this. It's on the screen. Verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, 
New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Praise God, the curse will be removed. All things will be made new, and righteousness will enjoy a permanent and perfect existence. So my friend, on the basis of all that God has prepared for a believer in Christ, you ought to live in constant expectation, looking for the return of King Jesus. Always looking, always looking, always waiting for Christ's return. Continually viewing everything in your life in light of your eternal destiny. But there's a danger we need to be aware of. There's a danger. If we stop looking, it's probably because we have fallen. You can stop looking because you have fallen. It's, it's easy to do. Let's say you trip on something. You're walking through the grass. Maybe you didn't see a, a, a branch or a stick in the grass and you or a hole, and you, you step in the hole, you trip over the branch, you fall. What, what often happens is you look at the ground, don't you? You take your eyes off the sky or whatever you may have been looking at. Well, we can do that spiritual, spiritually speaking. We stop looking because we've fallen. So the question is this, my friends. Peter addresses the next question for us. Well, then, how do Christians keep from falling? He's been concerned about this all along. Peter wanted you to know your salvation. He's wanted you to know the Scriptures. He's wanted you to know your enemy. And he's wanted you to know the future so that you don't fall, so that you bring glory to God. How do Christians keep from falling? Peter, first of all, says, be diligent to live a godly life. Look at verse 14. Uh, by the way, from here on, all the verbs Peter gives, they're all commands. They're in the imperative in the Greek language. Imperative just means they're a command, not an option. You have to do this. You must do this. You ought to do this. You know, how do Christians keep from falling? You have to be diligent to live a godly life. Life. As Peter says in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, he's writing to Christians, and he says, Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. For those of you who care in the Greek, it's an aorist, active, imperative verb. Something you must do. The verb be diligent means that you're to be zealous about what you do, to, to take great pains at accomplishing this task. It's going to require work. It's going to require great effort. And in this case, Peter's emphasizing the need for peace. Why? <laughs> because you might be tempted to squirm in panic, to writhe in anxiety, to have the, the wrong perspective on life. Instead, Peter says, you should be displaying peace. Peace. This kind of 
tranquility comes only to someone who is being spotless and blameless. The idea is there you're being free from moral stains. You are without this nagging guilt in your life. If you have moral stains and nagging guilt, you will never be at peace. Not if you're a believer, anyway. So, when we have a clear conscience by keeping short accounts with God, and as we work hard to grow in our faith, we can face our present troubles. And we can face future judgment with great confidence. So how do you keep from falling? Peter number 2 says, Be confident in God. Be confident in God. Present imperative in the Greek. You'll see the uh, the verb there in verse 15 is count. You're to count the patience of our Lord as salvation. So whereas the scoffers, Peter mentions in the previous context, the scoffers had said that the Lord's delayed return implied that He wasn't coming at all. Well, Peter called His delay an expression of His mercy. It's His patience that gives unbelievers an opportunity for salvation. And so Peter wants to encourage his readers here, be confident that Christ's delay is purposeful. His patience has a purpose in this. He has a purpose in what he's doing. He has a timetable that he's accomplishing. Peter wanted his audience to wait eagerly for Christ's return. He wanted them to be ready for Christ's return. At the same time, he didn't want them to just grow idle or become detached from society. He didn't want... You know, what, what some might be tempted to do, just kind of, you know, stop working and go sit on a mountain and wait for Jesus. Jesus is coming. Here I am. I'm ready. No, don't do that. Some, you know, people do that sort of thing. And so that, that's a danger we might face here. So here's the warning, my friends. Don't be cons- so consumed by the future that we are not living in the present. God doesn't want you to stop living. In fact, He's told us a lot of things in here on how to live. So don't be so consumed by the future you forget about the present. In other words, here's the way I like to explain it. You keep one eye on Christ and then another eye on people, on your life, what you're doing in the present. So one eye in the future, one eye in the present, if you will. So you're looking at both at the same time. So remember, God's judgment has not come yet. His wrath has not been poured out on the believers yet. Therefore, there is still time for us to proclaim the good news to the lost. So how do you live your life now? Peter says, as you're waiting for Jesus, proclaim the good news to the lost. Count, look look at verse 15, you count the patience of our Lord as salvation. There is still time for salvation. Still time to proclaim the good news to the lost. And so Peter reminds his readers here, continue in this ministry of reconciliation. Until Jesus comes, keep working. Seek to reach others with the gospel. Well, here's how the Apostle Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So my friend, that's your duty. As a believer, if you're a Christian, you're to be confident in God that He's accomplishing His purposes. So His mercy and His patience and His delay has a purpose. You need to believe it and live like it. Uh, How do you keep from falling? Peter goes on. Number three, he says, be constantly guarding yourself. Be constantly guarding yourself. You're not guarding a prisoner. You're guarding yourself. (laughs) And I say that because in the Greek, this is a present, middle, imperative verb. Present just means you're continually to do this. Constantly do this. Never stop guarding yourself. Never. And God has commanded you to do this. Now notice in verse 17... He says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand. Hindsight is really helpful. (laughs) And so Peter's basically saying this. Because we know beforehand that the false teachers twist the Scriptures, he wants you to stand watch. We must stand watch. Interesting. Peter's using military language here. The military term is take charge of a post. Keep our eyes open for the enemy. Why? Somebody's on guard has to stand to watch, keeping their eyes open, constantly looking for the enemy. Why? Because the enemy wants to sneak up on us. They'll come at us through the dense fog of deception. They wear our uniforms. They're sheep in wolves' clothing. Sorry, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. I got that backwards. I hope you're listening. Well, that'd be scary, wouldn't it? Think about that one. But they wear our uniforms. They carry our weapons. They speak our language, but they use a different dictionary. And so you have to be alert. You have to be on guard. You've got to constantly guard yourself. It's interesting, Peter commands us to do this. Not an option. And it's in the present tense. It means you continually do this command all the time, never stopping. In other words, you're constantly on guard. You never get a break. You never sleep on the job. You're always alert for the enemy because he can attack you at any moment. Why do we do this? Well, failing to be on guard is twofold. Look what Peter says. Number one, he says, If you don't do this, you could be dragged away by the errors of the false teachers. Watch out. Just like a soldier who might turn his back on his post, the enemy will attack and take you captive. second thing Peter mentions there in the verse, he says, you can fall from your steadfast position. By the way, when Peter talks about falling from your 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 stability or your steadfast position, he's he's not referring to you losing your salvation. You can't do that. So what's he talking about? He's talking about losing your sanctification. 
where you're, you're, you're no longer set apart from your sin unto God. The idea is you're stumbling backwards in your progress of your spiritual growth. This is what he's talking about. So he said, recall that, remember what I said back in chapter 1, Peter says, beginning in this letter, Peter listed, the, he had a list of virtues that you need to develop between faith and love. These are the godly habits that mark a Christian to be one who is useful and fruitful. If you read chapter 1, verses 5-8, through eight, Peter mentions that list of virtues, the Christian virtues. And so with this exhortation to diligence and spiritual growth, Peter gave a promise. Let me remind you what he says in chapter 1. He says, as you practice these things, these Christian virtues, he says, if you practice them, continually practice them, he says, you will never stumble. You'll never stumble. And so here in verse 17 of chapter 3, Peter acknowledges the possibility of slipping you can slip backwards. You can lose your spiritual stability and, and, and be rendered useless and unfruitful in your life. So my friend, don't let your guard down for one moment. Don't close your eyes. Don't fall asleep. Don't give up. Because if you do, it could be disastrous. The result could mean disaster for you and anyone around you. So how can we as believers then maintain our stability and avoid being uh, among the people whom Peter called unstable souls who are led astray? How do you avoid that? That's his next point. Number 4 in verse 18, Peter says, Be always growing. Be always growing. Again, it's a present active imperative verb. You're to always be doing this, constantly be doing this, Don't stop doing this. It is something you have to do. You must do. You must be growing spiritually. Literal translation is be constantly growing. Don't ever stop growing. You say, well, what am I supposed to grow in? Glad you asked. Peter tells you right in verse 18. Peter says you are to grow in the grace of Christ and grow in the knowledge of Christ. It's both. You can't leave either one. Well, you could leave one off. There's disaster if you do. But notice, first of all, I'll explain that in a moment. But notice, first of all, Peter says to grow in grace. So what does he mean by that? Well, this has to do with the Christian character traits he's he's already talked about in chapter 1. The very things that he wrote about there. Faith, love, so forth, diligence, so forth. Peter also, or sorry, the Apostle Paul also wrote about him. Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, long-suffering, so forth. And so my friend, these are the Christian graces, if you will. You're to grow in those. Paul said in Ephesians 2 verse 8 that we are saved by grace. But my friends, if you're saved by grace, recognize it doesn't stop there. Don't stop there, because you're to also live in grace. See, grace is not just Christ's riches at God's expense, the anachronym, but it's also God's enabling, God doing for you what you could never do for yourself. See, grace doesn't end at salvation. You must continually live in God's grace. 
Well, here Peter's exhorting believers to grow not just in grace, but notice he says grow in grace and knowledge. So here's the challenge for me. I've been exhorted by Peter this week. The challenge is to keep these two pursuits in balance. It's easy to become off balance. It's easy to take one to an unhealthy extreme and when we do, we become unbalanced, off balance. You, but, but Peter's saying, maintain both of these things at the same time. Grow in grace and knowledge. Both of them. Be balanced. You say, why is that important? Well, let me, let me put it this way to you in a table format. I got this from Charles Swindoll's uh, helpful table in his commentary. He, so he, on one side he's got grace, and the other one he has knowledge. Hopefully this will help you. So on the grace side, notice grace keeps you tolerant. Knowledge keeps you strong, right? You want to be tolerant and strong at the same time. You don't want to, you don't want to go to the extremes of either one. Notice grace gives you compassion. Knowledge gives you discernment. Grace helps you believe. Knowledge helps you question. Grace results in vulnerability. Knowledge results in stability. Right? You, you don't want to, to, to sway, have a pendulum swing to just way over on the knowledge side. You don't want to have a pendulum swing over to the grace side. My friends, Jesus was the perfect balance. You know, believe me, read John chapter 1, verse 14. It says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. He was full of grace and truth. Jesus wasn't a grace person, and Jesus wasn't a truth person. He was a grace and truth person, well-balanced. And that's the way we're to be. We're to be full of grace and knowledge. So what is knowledge? Well, you have to grow in this knowledge. And it's important that we don't be content in our knowledge, just to be content in our knowledge of Christ. Notice you're to keep advancing in this knowledge. Continue to increase. Because none of us have arrived. We haven't fully arrived yet. And so here's the warning, my friend. It can be easy to grow in knowledge, but not in grace. It can be easy to do that. All of us know far more of the Bible than we ever live. That's dangerous. You, you know a lot of the Bible, but how much of it do you actually obey and do and live it out? There's the danger. So you have to strive for balance. Why do I need to strive for balance? Because, well, again, think, think of this. What, what if you're a knowledge person and only a knowledge person? See, knowledge without grace becomes a terrible weapon. It becomes a terrible weapon. It becomes, you, you become one of these people who is intolerant. No compassion. It, you're not actually believing. You're, you're not vulnerable. You're just, you're just a terrible weapon. <laughs> you're not what you should be. Strive for balance. But then you got the other side of things. If you're a grace person... Grace without knowledge, you can just be very shallow. So you're not strong. You don't have discernment. You're, you're not able to question things. You have no stability. That's also dangerous. 
You don't want to be shallow. You don't want to be a terrible weapon. You need to be balanced. And so when we combine grace and knowledge, then you have a helpful tool for building your life as well as the church. And then you're able to glorify God the way you should. You say, well, how do I know if I'm growing? Because Peter says, continually be growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. By the way, it's all, notice it's all about Jesus. How, but how do I know that I'm actually growing? Well, I hope this helps. Ask yourself some questions. To monitor your own spiritual growth, ask yourself questions. Probe your inner being. For example, am I keeping grace and knowledge in balance? Or has my pendulum swung to either grace or knowledge? Are you in balance? Ask yourself, do others notice a measurable change in my character? Can, can other believers see the fruit of the Spirit in me? Have I come to the place where my past temptations no longer have the, the same dominance in my life that they used to? That'll show if you're growing. Are, are, you, are you giving in to the works of your flesh or to the Spirit? Which is it? Feed the Spirit so you don't walk in the flesh. Am I demonstrating more discernment when it comes to counterfeit claims? Am I a sitting duck for the false teachers? Or do I know the Scriptures so that I can see their counterfeit claims? You know, these, these are just some questions to ask that will help you to monitor your life to see, am I growing? By the way, keep growing. But what's the result of spiritual growth Peter ends the book with this. Notice what he says in verse 18. The result of the spiritual growth is not about you. It's all about God. The result of spiritual growth is you bring glory to God. You honor Him with your very life. Because Peter ends verse 18 by saying, To Him be the glory both now, that is present, and to the day of eternity. So now and into the future, for all eternity. So, my friends, here's number five. Be worshiping Christ. Be worshiping Christ. You want to keep from falling? Then you have to worship the right object of your worship. You have to worship the right person. You want to fall? Worship yourself. If you worship yourself, you will fall. So, be worshiping Christ. Well, you say, well, how do I do that? How do I worship Christ? How do I adore Him? How do I bring Him honor and glory? Well, the context tells us that it actually glorifies Jesus Christ, that if you forsake sin, forsake the error that He's, he's just mentioned. Because in verse 17, He said, take care. You're not carried away by the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. See, if you do that, then you're not glorifying God. If you fall to the error, you fall to sin, you're not glorifying God. In other words, my friends, stop worshiping yourself. If you do that, you're not glorifying God. It also glorifies Christ when we grow in grace and knowledge. When we're a balanced, well-balanced person growing in both, then we can become more like Christ. John 1.14 says, Jesus was full of grace and truth. 
So my friends, Peter's final doxology here to his Savior stands as a glorious testimony. Remember, this is coming from a man who had once fallen by denying Jesus Christ three times. But he was restored to a place of spiritual strength. Peter grew from someone who was a proud Galilean to someone who was a humble apostle. He came from the the likes of a humble fisherman, a simple fisherman, to become the legendary fisher of men. How did he do that? Well, God's grace. God's grace. God transformed him. And so, my friends, we too can follow on the same remarkable journey as the Apostle Peter. We can follow him on this spiritual journey as we do what Peter talks about here. As you follow him through this whole book, what did Peter tell us to do? Heed God's warnings. Recall God's reminders. Remember, he uses that word several times, remember, know, embrace those promises, apply diligence and hope, relying on the provision of the Holy Spirit. And my friends, when you do this, then you're going to be able to defeat the false teachers, the scoffers, the false doctrine that they teach. You'll be able to avoid the moral compromise that he's been writing about. You'll be able to join Peter in his passionate praise to God. Notice he called him both Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So my friends, you can join Peter as he says to him, to Jesus Christ, be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. And all God's people say, Amen. You're agreeing when you say amen. You're saying this is true. I agree. This is true. So, To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. So may your life, your entire life, your very attitudes, your actions, everything about you, bring Him honor and glory. That's what this book is about. May God enable you to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for working with sinners, even people who deny You at times. Thank You for raising up people who have fallen and using them. May You use us. We are fallen. We are broken people. Would You heal those the relationship between us and You, and make us people of reconciliation, ambassadors. So may we understand Peter's words today, take them to heart, and live them. Recognize our lives are not all about us. It's all about You. May we bring You honor and glory. May our very lives, our attitudes, and our actions give the right opinion of You before this broken world and before our fellow believers in Christ. May we exhort one another, encourage one another in these ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.